0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is uh, sponsoring today's uh, forum to mark the publication of a new book by Dick Armey and uh, Matt Kibbe, Give Us Freedom, a Tea Party Manifesto. Uh, Today is primary day in several states, as we know. It's the last big round of primaries before the fall midterm elections, Uh, and this year's primaries have been like none other that we've seen in uh, recent years. Uh, The people have arisen to uh, throw out the incumbents in a number of uh, elections uh, at a rate that's rarely been seen. Uh, It's the Tea Party movement in action. Uh, And so many of you may wonder why it is that uh, Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies is uh, sponsoring this event, uh, which is manifestly about a political movement. Well, those of you who are familiar with uh, Cato's work over the years knows full well that it's grounded in the Constitution, uh, as amended over the years by the people, not by the courts. We've long urged the courts to uh, restore the Constitution of limited government, uh, and in recent years the Rehnquist and the Roberts Courts have done this to a very limited extent. But we've also recognized that the courts can't do this by themselves. Um, If our constitution of limited government is to be restored, uh, it's got to come ultimately from the people. And that's what's so encouraging about the rise of the Tea Party movement. It's not simply about politics. It's about the restoration of limited constitutional government dedicated to securing individual liberty individual responsibility, free market principles, and sound, responsible government. That was the Founders' vision. Uh, it held in large part for 150 years, uh, but once the Progressive vision took seat in the c- country, uh, and rule by experts took over. Well, that rule by experts has given us the leviathan that we have today, the large government that we know and love so well, um, and it's the Tea Party movement that has come along to say enough is enough about this. The book we feature today discusses all of this in some detail. Uh, It's a rich history of the birth of the movement, uh, what it stands for, how to sustain the energy it's produced. But rather than my telling you about it, let's turn to the authors. Uh, They'll discuss the book's themes. Uh, Then we'll open it up to questions from you, after which we'll have lunch upstairs, and you can have your book signed uh, by uh, the authors. It's available at a discount just outside. Uh, Let me introduce uh, Dick Armey first, who will speak first, and then I'll introduce, when uh, Dick is through, um, uh, Matt Kibbe. Uh, Dick Armey uh, is currently the chairman of FreedomWorks, which is uh, one of the groups that has been around for a long time and has been uh, instrumental in helping the uh, Tea Party movement uh, uh, find its direction. Um, he uh, served. Uh, he serves as chairman of Freedom Works. Um, he was born in um, Kandu, is that the way it's pronounced? Kandu. In Kandu, North Dakota, yes. Uh, the fifth of eight children, uh, he earned his B.A. at Jamestown uh, University, his master's degree at the University of North Dakota, and his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Oklahoma, after which he taught for 13 years at the University of North Texas. Um, He first was elected to Congress in 1984 in the landslide election for President Reagan. Um, In 1994, he was the main author of the Contract for America. The contract helped the Republicans take over the Congress for the first time in 40 years, after which he became the majority leader. Uh, He uh, fully 60 percent of the Contract of America uh, became uh, the uh, signed into law, including the historic welfare reform. Uh, Dick is the author of uh, several books, including um, Price Theory: uh, uh, A Policy Welfare Approach, uh, Freedom Revolution, uh, The Flat Tax, and Army's Axiom, uh, which was written in 2003. Since joining Freedom Works in 2003, Army has traveled to over uh, uh, 20 states rallying grassroots, testifying before state and federal governments, meeting the pro-reform legislatures, and challenging, backsliding uh, politicians while helping advance FreedomWorks' mission of lower taxes, less government, and more freedom. Would you please welcome Dick Armey?
1: Thank you. Uh, I I have long held the view uh, that people at large have what I call them, in the old days when I was teaching a rational intuition and I find uh, Hayek parallels this and I forget the exact language he uses to describe the phenomena uh, we just always know more than we know we know and uh, we're more correct in our understanding than we we're always able to uh, express and uh, when when you think about that, uh, you begin to understand who are these folks that we now call the Tea Party movement in America. Uh, these are folks, uh, and it's not surprising that this movement begins with more or less my generation there, or folks between mine and, and Matt's age. One of the reasons it begins with that is because they know they know about liberty because they managed to get through school in America before American schools forgot uh, quit teaching about liberty. And so in a sense they, they had an intuitive understanding, uh, recollection, you know. We're supposed to be... In America, we're supposed to be confident enough and secure enough in our freedom and our liberty that we, can, uh, have, uh, that we have a government that has the decency to know the goodness of the people and restrain itself. And therefore, for the most part, we live in a nation where we can afford personally to pretty much ignore our government because we can know personally that it will do us no harm that all of a sudden they started waking up the fact, wait a minute, our government is becoming quite harmful, dangerously harmful to ourselves and our children. And uh, one of the things that I I find amazing about these folks is uh, they simply basically said, you know, we need to go back and review our understanding. And so I think there is more... Inquiry by the nation's population at large outside of formal educational structures into the nature and origins of our nation and its relationship to individual liberty than we've ever seen before. They're reading the founding documents, they're reading the founding fathers, they're reading the great thinkers on liberty, uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom, recently on the best-selling list. Who'd have thunk it? Right? And my. Ayn Rand, and uh, uh, refreshing their understanding, clarifying their understanding, and then, of course, combining that with uh, their action. They're aware that our government is woefully, woefully gone astray and dangerous to the nation, that there's only one force on this earth, That's sufficient enough in its size and its capabilities to ruin America, and that is the United States government. They're aware also that that was the greatest fear of our founding fathers. And that is why they wrote a constitution to limit government. And uh, they're also aware that they were advised and admonished by each and every one of these courageous genius, these entrepreneurs who created a nation unlike anybody had ever even dared to dream about before, that you can only keep this republic if you are active. So the first thing you realize when you walk among these folks and work with them and talk to them is that the first folks that they have held accountable in this is themselves. Our governments run amok in, in, in a spending spree of self-indulgence because we have not been vigilant. And they've brought themselves back into the game. We cannot, in fact, their, their observation is, stay out of the game and leave it to the experts because the experts have turned it into business for themselves. And uh, having first held themselves accountable, the, the, I think the miracle, Matt going go into this in greater detail, the miracle that mystifies the left uh, or the establishment, in fact, in general, uh, is the Internet. They talk to one another Over the internet, I always laugh. I said, "Poor old Al Gore's got to deal with the fact that he is the inventor of the demise of the left." But at any rate, uh, uh, what they what they realize now is that they can organize among and between themselves, and having held ourselves accountable and visited among ourselves with our shared responsibility, our shared understandings of what America must be like as first a free nation and secondly a government that has an understanding that its first duty is the protection of that liberty to maintain a structure of self-restraint and minimal involvement that is focused on essential tasks on a cost-effective and in a, in a Uh, 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 non-intrusive manner that we now have the moral authority to hold office holders and office seekers accountable. So what this movement is about now is replacing malfeasant office holders with those who understand about service. They understand that those people who accept high office as a license to go into business for themselves and to be self-indulgent. And by the way, they're aware, for example, they don't always get the expression. The first bailouts were called earmarks, and they were bailing out lazy office holders who wanted to be reelected by public funding. And then the bailouts went to their corporate friends and here and there and everywhere, and all of this biling burden and the threat of insolvency on their grandchildren. And so we must hold them accountable and remove them. Right now, their activities have been primarily focused in changing the nature of the candidates fielded by the Republican Party with the principle that we always elect the most conservative elective people we can. And they frankly had amazing... Can you imagine now the uh, incumbent officeholders... Principally Republican, that have been denied the renomination by their own party, especially at the Senate level. This would not have happened without these folks. They've got the establishment on the run on both sides of the aisle. The Republicans to this point have felt the pain and the loss more clearly, uh, and the Democrats are about to feel it in November. Now, the po- The fact, the matter is, what we're doing is we're reforming and restoring our government. This is what we're doing. I think it's one of the healthiest, most laudable uh, public activities I've ever been privileged to be a part of. Most viciously maligned and misrepresented uh, activities that I've seen for a long time. And uh, we felt we ought to write this book to tell the true story of the Tea Party, this Tea Party movement that is America getting health, healthy again. That's why, basically, the way we see it. And uh, we're very proud of this country. I might even say, sort of, to paraphrase one of our great national personalities not for the first time, but for the first time in a long time, I'm proud of my country again. So I might, but you, you must be proud of this because these are ordinary, everyday citizens who have taken on the responsibility of preserving their liberty and guaranteeing it for their posterity and doing so by taking on their own government. What can be more In the tradition of this great country. So, uh, Matt and I are both very proud of that and proud that they let us have the privilege of telling their story.
0: Well, thank you, Dick. The book, by the way, goes into not only the history of the Tea Party, but the history of citizen involvement in changing the government from the beginning, indeed, from before the beginning. Of the United States as a free and independent country. All right, we're going to now hear from Matt Kibbe, who is the president of Freedom Works. Uh, Matt became the president and CEO uh, in June of 2004. Uh, prior to that, he uh, from from '96 to 2004 he was Freedom Works' executive vice president. Um, he manages uh, the overall operations and strategy of the organization including public policy development grassroots operations and state and federal issue campaigns for the organization prior to joining freedom works uh, matt uh, served as chief of staff and house budget committee associate for us rep uh, dan miller uh, from 1993 to 96 uh, between 1990 and 93 He was director of federal budget policy for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, He is a uh, graduate of uh, Grove City College in economics, and he studied economics also at George Mason University. He's written extensively on economics, public policy, and politics for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Times, Reason, Market Process, the Journal of Regulation and Social Costs, and elsewhere. Please welcome Matt Kibbe.
2: Well, thanks for having me, and I was just reminded uh, David Bozer to remember this, but one of the first things I ever wrote that made any sense whatsoever was a Cato paper. I think it was in 1986 on the minimum wage, um, and I, still, I see it still shows up on, on some of the blogs. Um, say what you want about this beautiful chaos that we call the Tea Party movement. At least it's an ethos. And I channel the Big Lebowski for a reason here, because the Tea Party at some point started to be referenced as a political party. The press took the word, the phrase Tea Party movement, and turned it into capital T, capital P, and started comparing it to a political party. But the Tea Party is not a political party. The Tea Party is better than a a political party because it's based on an ethos. It's based on a set of ideas. And ideas don't change. Political parties change all the time. Ideas don't go away. Ideas work if they're good ideas. And that makes the Tea Party movement far more important than a political movement. It's going from this small sliver of Americans that pay attention to politics to a much broader cultural space where Americans live. And that's why we're so excited about this opportunity we see today because it's really the ideas that that Cato has talked about and the founders talked about and and Hayek talked about and everyone that believes in freedom translated into pop culture. And you saw it uh, with You know, when Glenn Beck holds up Hayek's book and all of a sudden everybody's reading Hayek. By the way, they were reading Hayek long before Glenn Beck held up the book. And they're reading Ayn Rand, and and I like to say it this way, the Tea Party movement has been fueled by the decentralization of knowledge online that allows us to do an end run right around the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and the three national TV networks. So we don't have to listen to Michael Steele for our information. We don't have to listen to Dan Rather for our information. We're going right around them and getting that knowledge from multiple sources all on our own. And that's exactly what's going on in the Tea Party movement. Uh, You know, some people suggest that these folks are illiterate (laughs) rubes that, that haven't read anything. I remember last September 12th, finally wading through the hundreds of thousands of people that had gathered on the, on the Capitol steps at the, at the March on Washington, and one lady had draped a sign right over the, the front of the security barrier. It was as big as she was. It was probably six feet tall, and it said, Read Thomas Sowell. Doesn't seem inarticulate or ill-read to me. And this is what's driving the left nuts, because nobody's in charge of this thing and everybody is getting the information for themselves, whether it is whether they're reading the health care for themselves. And you literally had thousands of activists and blogger, bloggers slicing and dicing the health care bill within minutes of it being posted online. And you have this, this beautiful, competitive, spontaneous order that is, is pulling these, these bits of knowledge and posting them online and feeding this movement and getting them information in real time. And this is a a new phenomenon. It's very different than anything we've seen in our lifetime. And some of you will recognize this process is very much what Hayek talked about when he described the spontaneous order of the market process. He talked about the personal knowledge of time and place and how everybody in their spot, in society, in their communities had knowledge that nobody else had. And somehow, through the miracle of, of, of cooperation and the price system, things happened. Buyers found sellers. People cooperated. Society got wealthier. Well, that, that same process very much describes the origins of the Tea Party movement. We went from, and we document this in the book, we went from a few lonely activists getting up off of their couches, and this was I think this was in response more to Republican malfeasance than anything President Obama did, getting off the, off their couches and saying, we've got to do something, and not knowing what to do, but going out and doing it anyway. And the first protest we can document was Mary Reykjavik in Fort Myers, Florida, where she showed up outside of a rally that President Obama was having with then-Republican Charlie Crist, celebrating the trillion dollars in money we didn't have that was going to stimulate the American economy. And that, that, by the way, is the now infamous hug between Charlie Chris and Barack Obama that became such a powerful campaign image when he lost the, the Republican primary for the Senate seat. Mary, Mary Reykjavik was excited to see that about a dozen other people showed up. But within a, within a couple days she held another event and hundreds of people showed up. And Kelly Carinder in Seattle, a young school teacher, wanted to do something and was shocked when hundreds of people showed up in Seattle protesting big government. And then Rick Santelli came along. And what Rick Santelli did, and, and it, I think it was completely inadvertent, is that he connected people back to an American tradition that maybe a lot of us had forgotten maybe not the people in this room, but the the idea that America was founded not just on the radical principles of individual freedom, but on the radical principle that the people could be trusted to govern themselves. Thomas Jefferson was a radical Democrat. Santelli reminded people of that, and people started going back and looking at the Boston Tea Party, what was that all about? We, we happened to be studying the Boston Tea Party years ago at, at our organization because um, I actually found it on a website for a radical leftist group called the Ruckus Society. And the Ruckus Society is the worst of the worst. They spike trees, um, they, they promote all sorts of, not just bad ideas, but bad behavior amongst the radical left. And when, when you went to their grassroots training manual, they call it direct action. What was their model for social change? It was a Boston Tea Party. And at the time, we said, when did we lose our own tradition? And don't you think we should steal it back from the left? And that's exactly what the Tea Party movement has done. And we talk about you know, the, this tradition that started with Sam Adams recruiting people on the docks of Boston in the 1750s and the 1760s. And these weren't the intellectual elite. These were the people in colonial America that felt that freedom was worth fighting for. And this was not a spontaneous uprising against government power and crony capitalism and all the things that we know um, fueled, philosophically fueled the Tea Party. It was a conscious effort by grassroots activists to demonstrate to the rest of colonial America that freedom was worth fighting for, that independence was worth fighting for. And it really does, and, and I believe this, that we're reminded in the history of our own founding, that there was there was what Leader Army calls an inside-outside game. We had the intellectual entrepreneurs inside the Continental Congress. We've all read them, we all know them, we all understand their genius, but we also had this grassroots cadre, they called themselves the Sons of Liberty, that were outside the Continental Congress. They were on the docks of Boston. They were on that ship and dumped tea into the water. And without that pressure from the outside, the geniuses that that wrote the Declaration and the Constitution never would have succeeded. And that's part of the American tradition and that was part of the mandate from the founders that the people stay involved. I call it eternal vigilance. Thomas Jefferson says that the people are the only sure reliance in the defense of our liberty. George Washington said, and I never get this quote right, so I tried tried to write it down, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the fate of the Republican form of government is staked firmly and perhaps finally in the experiment entrusted on the American people. I think what he's saying there is that this whole thing isn't going to work unless the people stay involved. Today, I think that the Tea Party movement is, is a rebirth, if you will, of the mandate from the founders that a constitutionally limited government will not work unless people stay vigilant, stay on their elected officials, and insist that they not only say the right thing, but do the right thing. And that makes this movement more than a political movement. There's gonna be a lot of election results and and we, we describe this in the book that the Tea Party movement first and foremost from a political standpoint is in fact a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And that got a lot of press and we mean that as economists and there's a very technical meaning of the word hostile takeover but what you're seeing again and again in election after election is tax and spend Republicans being replaced with people that believe that the Constitution limits the size of government. Believe that you shouldn't spend money you have. Believe that governments don't run car companies or healthcare systems very well. And it's been quite dramatic, and I think that's gonna have a real impact on the, um, the makeup of the next Congress, whether it be controlled by Republicans or Democrats. And then, of course, on November 2nd, we're gonna see a substantial turnout, a wave of independent voters, Tea Partiers, we are gonna really change the numbers, the head count in the next Congress. Um, How that turns out, let's wait and see how that turns out. Um, 1994 had nine million new voters show up at the polls and they were mostly independents, they were mostly reacting somewhat spontaneously to two things, one, uh, democratic excesses and two, the promise of a national vision that uh, a few people over on this side of the panel helped produce called the Contract from America. Well, the Tea Party movement has created its own contract. And again, from the bottom up, again spontaneously through these bits of knowledge and information that has come through the internet, hundreds of thousands of people voted on a contract from America. And the top 10 were posted. Um, And I challenge any of you as limited government conservatives or as libertarians to find any any problems with that document. And that that is what binds the Tea Party movement. There's a lot of things we disagree on as any broad social movement. There's You could have arguments for the rest of our lives about what we disagree on. But what binds us is the simple ideas that, that the founders animated. Government shouldn't spend money it doesn't have. The Constitution is a set of rules that properly limits the size and scope of government. And freedom, personal, individual liberty. That's, if you, if you wade through the crowds and you talk to these folks, those are the three things that brought them there to this. So I think it's an opportunity, um, from our point of view, November 3rd is far more important than November 2nd, because that's the test. The question is, is this movement sustainable? Is this just a political uprising that will, will come and pass just like we've seen political uprisings in the past? Or is this, in fact, a, a cultural shift, a rediscovery of the ideas of liberty and a translation of those ideas into a cohesive community? I happen to believe that it is, and I think on November 3rd, you're going to see a, an aggressive effort to hold newly elected officials accountable for the promises they made in the election. And we, have to find, we all have to find ways to, to support and feed this movement, and they want ideas, and they want um, ways that they can be more effective when it comes to actually translating ideas and protests into legislation, and they want to know how they can effectively get, get America back where it belongs. And that's an opportunity I I hope we all join in. It would be a shame to let it pass, and I think uh, I just couldn't be more excited. I'm a little tired right now, but this is our moment. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Matt. Uh, Before we went on, um, Dick and Matt said they wanted to keep their remarks Relatively short, so that we could have lots of questions from you folks, consistent with their theme of from the bottom up. And so now we have that time. Uh, let me uh, ask you to raise your hand if you have a question, uh, and identify yourself. Wait till the microphone gets there. To, uh, tell us any affiliation you may have, hey. and um, to whom your question is directed. First person. Uh, Right up there in the back, we have a lady with her hand way up.
3: Uh, My name is Elizabeth Edwards. I'm a new intern here at the Cato Institute with uh, the media department. And I have a question about the relationship between the so-called Tea Party and Sarah Palin. Within the first ten minutes of the vice presidential debates against Joe Biden, Sarah Palin repeated the class warfare left-wing lie that the economic collapse could be blamed on uh, the greed on Wall Street, and uh, I haven't seen anything that shows that she has uh, really the the true convictions um, that are required for a revolution in government. So does... Does the seeming eagerness of many Tea Party members to embrace Sarah Palin uh, concern you, and if not, why not?
1: Yeah, let me. Let me. I think uh, you're you're talking about Sarah Palin before she went rogue. My guess is that on that occasion in her life as a newly selected vice presidential candidate, a person basically just sort of thrown in the deep water and said, swim, and here's the instruction manual, she was doing what her handlers did. She soon got impatient with that. So let's sort of bring fast forward. This great big movement that we see is very skeptical and cynical. First of all, it has no trust of political parties. Political parties they see as empty vessels and whimsical and adaptive to whatever ideas they think helps them get. There's a great country western song, I don't care what's right or wrong, I don't try to understand, let the devil take tomorrow because tonight I need a friend. And that's basically the way politicians think. And uh, uh, so they've been very skeptical. that There are very few national political persons who have won their trust and respect, and she has done so. Well, the Sarah Palin you described at that moment, at that time, acting out the coaching of her handlers as assigned to her by the presidential uh, nominee who just selected her uh, is not the Sarah Palin that would have earned the trust of such folks. She went rogue. That was to the distress of the Republican establishment, and, remain, and return to being authentic. And the authentic Sarah Palin has earned the, the, the trust of these folks. Uh, so the fact of the matter is, I think if you were to sit down and talk to the authentic Sarah Palin that's out there now on her own hoof, making her own ground on her own terms, you would find that she's quite different than that person that appalled you at that
2: moment.
0: Matt, you want to add something to
2: that? Uh, yeah, and it's important to point out that... Uh, The Tea Party movement is leaderless, and a lot of the activists have have actually read The Starfish and the Spider, and they've embraced that phrase. And by leaderless, we mean that there are thousands and thousands of Tea Party leaders. It's localized. It's decentralized. Sarah Palin is not in charge of the Tea Party. Dick Armey is not in charge of the Tea Party. Glenn Beck is not in charge of the Tea Party. Um, That said, I would like to address – I don't remember what she said in that campaign, but another thing that animates – The Tea Party is frustration and even anger with with, what Gerald O'Driscoll calls crony capitalism. And the TARP bailout and the the stuff that led up to the TARP bailout certainly involved a lot of corporate malfeasance. And it was this relationship that O'Driscoll talks about between committee chairmen and privileged bankers and a a fixing of the rules and haves and have-nots, uh, the Tea Party movement rejects that. They reject any corporation that has its snout in the, in the public trough, whether it use it to, to rent-seek for earmarks or to game the system against others. And I think this is healthy. I mean, some people view this as populism, but if that's populism, sign me up. Uh,
0: this uh, lady right here.
4: Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask a question regarding um, the Tea Party movement and the backing of some of its candidates. Now, I'm older, so um, if this movement ever takes off, Ross Perot tried it. I did live in Seattle, so I know what Seattle's like in terms of its politics. But if some of the Tea Party movement-backed candidates should win in November for House or Senate seats... How will they maintain their indiv- independency without being sucked in by either party, without changing the what they ran on and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to stand up for what you elected me to stand up for. Uh, it's very nice to have these ideals. Mr. Army, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult to maintain that MO when you are elected to office and you have pressure put on by the, either party uh, with money and votes and getting what you want, negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. Well,
1: if you take a look at the Tea Party-backed candidates that have sort of gotten through the first test, the Republican primary, uh, Young Lee in Utah, he beat the establishment by being his own man. He's not going to forget that. And he's going to go to Washington on his own terms. I've often said that when you come to this town, if you don't know who you are, someone's going to own you by sundown. I think Young Lee knows that, certainly Pat Toomey knows who he is, uh, 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 Rubio, is, well, I forget the name, Rizzo, uh, in uh, Washington State, who's fixing to win, yeah, but, but for, so for the first part, they win their, the nomination of the Republican Party by beating the Republican establishments, so they're often running on their own hoof, on their own terms to begin with. Now. We've seen good folks come to this town and go bad. And uh, this Tea Party is acutely aware of the fact that not too many years ago we all rejoiced in a new Republican majority that soured out on them. And they, But they say, and this is what I mentioned earlier, why did the Republicans go bad when they had the majority the last time? Because we failed in our duty to maintain surveillance They are now aware of the fact that there are three, there are three identifiable groups of people who have the privilege of spending other people's money. Thieves, children, and politicians. They all need adult supervision, and we accept the responsibility to be that adult supervision. So I don't expect this, this group to go bad so quickly, if at all, because they're going to be not, they're not going to be left to their own devices. I think the best term limits in the, in, in the world are the malfeasant people being turned out. You don't, you don't think that the lesson of responsibility was uh, wasted on the rest of the senators when two of their own lost their own party's nomination? That's a far more penetrating lesson to the rest of them who remain in office than they got just kicked off the meter because the meter ran out. They got kicked out because they'd done bad. That's a good lesson. There's an awful lot of senators today that just want us to know what special folks they are.
0: Uh, this gentleman right here. My name
2: is, uh, My name is Richard Latandos. I'm a Canadian journalist. I would just like you to know what you, uh, uh, what's your impression on the fact that the, the the perception that the movement is fed by the uh, economic crisis and if the unemployment rate for instance uh, went down and if wages went up and the situation improved then the, there would be less and less frustrated people wanting changes in the American society
1: I don't believe that I think the movement is fed by a people fearful of, for the loss of their liberty to big government that's gotten too audacious and taken over health care taken over General Motors way out of line and uh And spending money the way they've done. Uh, with These folks, if you talk to them, I mean, you talk to a mechanic from, uh, say, Mesa, North Dakota, and he says, I understand economics better than the President of the United States. It's not supposed to be that way. The President of the United States is supposed to be smarter about that stuff than we are. And it scares me. No, I don't think these are folks that are here only because they're or someone they know are unemployed. They're here because they're afraid their children are going to drown in a sea of red ink. So, um, Matt, maybe you can react to them, but we've spent a lot of time with these folks. And uh, and uh, I'll tell you, the depth of their commitment and uh, is far, far greater than the economic crisis of the moment.
0: In fact, is it not the case, Matt, that the concern for the Constitution is what characterizes these people, perhaps more than anything, and that will long, um, when we do get back to economic uh, norm- normalcy, that uh, that will continue. It's a decline in liberties that uh, so much animates this movement. And You see the signs at the rallies, and they... Are overwhelmingly signs that say something like "Give us back our Constitution." You've experienced that, I assume, in other parts of the country as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's not unusual that they in fact produce the Cato Constitution from their back pocket. These these guys actually read the Constitution, which is something that maybe ma- many members. It's of available
0: Congress- outside for just a dollar, by the way.
2: And I'm getting twenty five percent every royalty, but there is it. There's a there's a there's a justice component here and I'm not talking about social justice, which apparently means taking my money and giving it to someone else. I'm talking about justice which is treating everybody exactly the same as everybody else under the, the rules of law. And you look at some of the, the first boiling points of the Tea Party, and it was bailing out irresponsible homeowners who had who had lied on their loans. It was bailing out irresponsible banks who had gamed the system and taken risks, assuming that you guys would all pay for it.
0: Fellow right here. Sir. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. Wait, wait uh, uh, I write for the Pakistani spectator. I'm a Republican. I have a question about the xenophobic and very introvert element that
1: Tea Party is trying to bring, for example, what party. did in New York. I'm Muslim. I'm as American as you are. But the way, for example, I'm from Pakistan. Pakistan lost 3,000 people just within last year. Our economy, Pakistan economy, lost $100 million,
5: billion dollars in opportunity lost. What is happening there in Afghanistan? So giving the impression that somehow these Muslims are outsiders and they are coming here to conquer the country without realizing what are those people, poor people suffering in Pakistan and in those
1: Muslim countries, it's very, very cheap shot. And even I'm Republican, I'm more conservative than you are and then... You are, but I feel very hurt that the way these people are operating. Do you have any
0: question? Thanks. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry. No. Well, I'll I'll be the first to say. I mean, I don't know what uh, what's going on here because once again, like I got say I don't believe that these folks don't address these issues. These folks are concerned with their personal liberty and the liberty of all people. They're concerned with a government that is just simply run amok and th- running into fi- the nation into financial crisis. The driving issues now, when you have, as we did uh, a year ago, a million people, or as we did two days ago, a half a million people. On a lot of issues, there's going to be a lot of variety of op- opinion, but the driving concerns of these folks have not, uh, are the central concerns of sound economic policy that's born out of the restraint of big government and the confinement of the attention of government to that limited number of tasks that must be done with efficiency and cost-effectiveness to allow the rest of the world to prosper and respect for the individual's right to be uh, free on their own hoof. And And, and I think it's Frankly, when I walk again, when I walk among them, it's the most inclusive group of people I know, and the most tolerant group of people I know. I mean, they sit down, they say, somebody says, "Well, I'm for this." Well, that's kind of a strange thing, but good for you. <laughs> you know, I don't happen to agree with that particular point of view on this issue, but isn't it great that we're working together on? I wrote a article in '90. Uh, when we were probably seeing the death of what was known as the Reagan Coalition called Angels' Choir, or Freedom's Choir. And I say, evangelicals and libertarians were walking arm in arm in common cause against the growth of the big government and the domination of the state against the rights of the individual. And uh, I see that reemergent here. So I'm sorry. I I hope you haven't fe- ever felt unwelcome, but I would bet you, you have a better chance of fe- feeling unwelcome in either of the two standing political.
2: Uh, can I just add just, just two more points? I should have added Newt Gingrich to the list of people who aren't in charge of the Tea Party.
0: <laughs> As you look through the contract from America, you will see nothing about this. And, of course, you haven't seen thousands of signs out there that are xenophobic, or anti-Muslim. All right, this gentleman right here. Uh, Fernando Menendez, Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Uh, Just came back from Europe, and in Europe there is much talk among conservatives and among classical liberals about the Tea Party, its replicability. Um, it's, uh, It's very exciting to them to see it. Uh, In any dynamic situation, we know we have forces that are driving it, and we also know that we have forces that are hindering its advance. I'd like to know from from both of you, instead of um, presuming what those forces are, if you could speak a little bit to what is driving the movement, if you will, and what are some potential threats to it that may hinder its development?
1: Well, fear. Fear. The Tea Party is driven by the fear that people in high office don't understand. And people in high office are driven by the fear that people understand. Uh, so, I mean, uh, so uh, seriously, I mean, they're afraid for their country. They're not angry. They they don't have this guy or that guy. I don't like him. Uh, they're scared for their country. They understood that the the... the the promise of the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity is a unique promise and a sacred promise and a wonderful hope for our grandchildren. I don't know, a grandparent alive in this world that isn't spending the remaining days on this earth devoted to the well-being of their grandchildren. That's where we put our hope. And, uh, and then the establishment said, oh, my goodness. And, you know, the least they'll do is make us do honest work. How inconvenient is that? then they might actually make that work be service in the lives of people other than ourselves. Well, this is incongruous. It's outrageous. Who the hell do they think they are? How can they impose on us this way? And so the the establishment on both sides of the aisle, they're, they're scared to death. I mean, can you imagine a politician being asked to put responsible policy for America ahead of my immediate political needs? That's turning the world upside down. What what did they play at the surrender of Cornwallis? That's what these politicians are, fear. They're facing the world will be turned upside down, and people will come before us. That's not right. But so I, fear is a big deal, right here. Honest, legitimate fear on one end, self-serving, selfish, short-sighted fear on the other.
2: But it's it is the internet. And this decentralization of knowledge, which is the fuel that's going to allow this thing to, to take off all across the world. And the Tea Party is becoming a brand. Even in Macedonia, I gave a speech there this summer, and they know what the Tea Party is.
0: Yes.
5: I have a quick question as a follow-up. I'm Kamer Davis, and I'm a resident of D.C. How does the Tea Party feel about taxation and representation?
0: taxation with representation as opposed to without it? Correct. In other words, all would have been well in the American Revolution if we'd only had representation and could tax ourselves to death.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they, they take on the honorable American tradition that you should have a legitimate te- levy of taxation only through a g- legitimate government that is first ordained by the people at large. Uh, and uh, But they are probably a little bit more concerned about, uh, going back to Milton Friedman's observation, that the real rate of taxation is the level of spending, and you, 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 we've got to get spending under control. The thousand-pound gorilla that's breaking the back of the American economy is this government. The government is too big, too fat, too sloppy, too inefficient, too meddlesome, Uh, to inefficiency uh, 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 sponsoring, uh, and it's killing the American economy. And, of course, the immediate discernible taxes levied are insufficient to pay their immediate costs. Therefore, you get indirect taxation through either inflation or the taxation of a coming generation. But if you are addressing the uh, city of D.C.'s Perceived plight that they're underprivileged. uh, I think, by and large, you would find that Tea Party movement is comprised of people who, really, frankly, just don't give a damn.
0: (laughs) This lady up. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's not a big issue for them. D.C. They see the city of D.C. They perceive is that city which has the privilege of housing the the fastest growing industry in America: big government.
5: Yeah, there's no recession in Washington. Yeah, my name is yes. Li Yang. I'm really independent TV producer. But I have been going through the decades, and I think the government is run really by people. What that means, not just those people elected by the people. What that means, the men who run the government or who support them to go to the government elected office are really people. And the people, if we don't really restrict the way they do things, what I mean is uh, the things do wrong is both within our people and the grassroots level, plus the people elected office, because those elected people are really elected by the voters. So if the voters don't really get rid of those bad guys, and then those big guys who are support, those people who just listen to them, as you can see, they just day after day, just doing a campaign, fundraising, or maybe they have some kind of town hall meeting, but they really restricted the real good people to make good recommendation, and they really don't resolve the problem. So what we have to do, if this party, tea party, is going to work, we just have to say tea party stand up and have some courage to get rid those bad guys who do the official misconduct or who do the racial profiling or who are three branches of the government with all kind of misconduct. It's not just judges by core personnel. It's just really important, the basic, we have to do it.
2: Okay. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take that because what I hear is public choice 101, and I think that's a realization that every Tea Partier has really taken to, to heart Uh, We can no longer count on politicians to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. We can no longer count on politicians to do what they said they were going to do. We have to give them an incentive to do the right thing by showing up. And I think it's really uh, James Buchanan translated into a mass movement. I have not seen him out there with a sign, but I think he's cheering uh, behind the scenes.
0: (laughs) Uh, This uh, gentleman right here behind the Apple computer.
2: The Apple computer. Um, hey, I'm Chris Hayes from The Nation magazine. I'm I'm curious about foreign policy.
0: W- um, welcome to Cato. Thank you. i from The Nation. I've, I've been here quite a bit,
2: actually. Um, I'm curious about foreign policy. It seems like if you want to talk about uh, the size of government and it doing things sloppily and expensively, it's, it's hard to look away from the wars, the two wars we're fighting, particularly the war in Iraq. Um, I know Mr. Army's expressed regret over the, 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 the vote on the war in Iraq. But I'm curious to the degree to which the constituency of the Tea Party sees foreign policy, foreign militarism as a central core issue of liberty and, and growth of government or whether it's sort of outside the purview of the, of the core set of principles you said that are kind of binding people together. Go ahead, man. I, I think like a lot of these non-fiscal issues, there's a broad diversity of opinion. On foreign policy. Well, I'm telling you what they think. That was a question, right? Mm. Um, so we have Ron Paul on our stage, and we have um, folks that, that adamantly think that we should win in Iraq and Afghanistan. And absolutely, the defense budget is a fiscal issue.
1: Yeah, My wife puts it to me this way on so many of these issues. If we lose the country, all of these things are rather curious, aren't they? the the question right now we're going to save this nation or not and the th- the the threat that the nation faces is a threat of insolvency the threat of th- just the the whole surrender of your personal liberties to an overbearing government that somehow is going to control your life in a thousand different ways i mean they take away your liberty here they do it and by the way it just watch President Obama don't think for a moment that his zeal for control is going to be diminished by the loss of the Senate or the House and, and possibly Senate majority. If they cut him off at the legislative pass, he will go the executive administrative route. And one of the disciplines that this new Congress had better learn and practice immediately is the discipline of congressional oversight of runaway agencies run amuck. But these issues are all important, and they're important to everybody out there, but there's a broader diversity of, of, of ideas and a, a lesser sense of urgency that they attach to them.
0: Um, all the way in the back, we have a gentleman with his hand up. You're alluding to the non-delegation doctrine, of course, uh, Dick.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the uh, the Tea Party Identify is... Identify yourself. I'm you... oh, sorry, Christine Carmen, I'm unaffiliated. Uh, I just want you guys to talk about what the Tea Party movement is doing in the judicial space. And we've talked a lot about the executive branch, and legislative branch, and their ire at that. But what are their kind of particular grievances with um, are the greater court system and the Supreme Court, things like that? Thanks. You want me to do that? Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I can't remember which state it was, but I was just talking to a Tea Party activist that is getting very focused on local judicial elections and holding that branch accountable as well. It's a more interesting problem, and you see uh, we had Ken Cuccinelli on the stage this last Sunday talking about the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate and some of the things the federal government is doing, and he is a Tea Party rock star by any measure. So there is a lot of focus on that branch of government as well. I think as this thing evolves and, and, and gets more into local elections, they're going to start driving some of these judicial races as well, and that's going to have an impact not just on those specific elections, but the behavior of the judiciary.
0: Uh, Andy? Andy?
1: I'm Andy Stevens with Defeat the Debt. At the rally at the Capitol on Sunday, the favorite sign that I saw said, Shrug, Atlas, Shrug. (laughs) I I like to think we really are at that point of a revolution that will institute the ideas that Roger and so many other people in this room have been working on for so long. But, Matt, as you said, we still have incentives in place for politicians to get reelected by bringing home the goodies. So my question is, how do we change those incentives in a lasting way so that this revolution lasts longer than the Republican Revolution of 94.
2: I happen to think there's no – I'm a former budget economist, and and I know a lot about uh, balanced budget amendments and tax limitation. I happen to think that there's no silver bullet, which is why we do grassroots organization. I think the most effective way to rein in government is to create an incentive through grassroots pressure, through voting, through activism – that, that literally forces politicians to do the right thing.
1: Let me also point out, speaking on behalf of the first derivative, uh, all change comes at the margin. And I'm thinking about poor Trent Lott, bless his heart, uh, who is scared to death that we might have a whole Senate full of Jim DeMintz. We don't need a whole Senate full of Jim DeMintz, but we're going to have ten. We're going to have ten true, hardy people you can start naming them, Rubio, you know, uh, uh, Toomey, uh, Lee. And if you got ten people who really and truly adore the Constitution, understand service, and are smart and hardworking, like Jim DeMint, you've changed the culture of the Senate. And that's basically what we, we will do. And that's a marginal change. We didn't win all the marbles, but we got all the big shooters.
0: Uh, this gentleman right here. I'm Terry Cooper. How high on the hit parade these days are so-called legislative process issues like uh, an aversion to these thousand-page bills and guaranteeing everybody, including the public, enough time to digest, not just read, but understand and publish their thoughts on these bills before they're voted on.
1: I think it's a big part of the process. It starts probably under the overall umbrella of read the bill. But also there's an acute awareness that they've got sloppy work practices there. Now, legislative sloppy work is instrumental to the political objectives of the Democrat Party because they enfranchise trial lawyers and bureaucrats who are usually... Uh, union members who are uh, who are uh, contributing to their campaigns, Republicans do sloppy work only because they 're lazy i mean there 's no excuse there 's no self interest one can identify with Republicans doing legislatively sloppy work uh, so uh, the fact of the matter is uh, the the fact is the republicans or the Congress can scarcely get anything done through regular order and the discipline, uh, observance of their own legislative practices, all of which are very useful and utilitarian, but can, in a legislative panic, spend $750 billion over the weekend. uh, has got to be corrected. And I think our, our grassroots activists understand that. So... I think what they're saying to these folks is go up there and work like serious adults. Uh, Don't just be whimsical and make political decisions.
2: Uh, By the way, go to contractfromamerica.com, and you will see that that the issues you just talked about very much animate the top ten issues that are driving the Tea Party agenda. Uh,
0: the, The young woman behind the camera.
3: Afternoon, uh, Dina El Shanawi, Al Jazeera English. Uh, you speak of honorable American traditions and adhering to the basic principles of the Constitution. How does the Tea Party intend on appealing to citizens of this country with various religious and ethnic backgrounds when, as you've said, you don't, you know, you have many leaders, you don't have one leader, and many of these leaders have spoken publicly uh, and controversially about issues like Park 51 and, you know, Uh, accusing Obama of being a Muslim, etc.
2: I'll I'll take that one. And again, the the Tea Party is colorblind. The Tea Party judges people based on the content of their character. And if you go to the Tea Party stage and you go to the Tea Party community all over this country, you will find people of all religions, of all races. Uh, You might even find a vegetarian in there somewhere. And uh, I, I think that this is the most diverse group of people that is very open to a lot of ideas. It doesn't mean that we have unanimity on everything, and I, I don't know how to get there because humans don't seem to want to go there. Um, but uh, check out a project we just launched, DiverseTea.com, and it's a platform for um, various Tea Party leaders from all walks of life who have, who have sort of risen to the stage and are, are trying to take their country back.
1: I mean, I mean I, 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 I've been aware of something, acutely aware of something for a long time, for, in the last uh, few weeks. I believe this movement as it's sweeping across the, uh, the country and asserting itself has been the largest liberating movement on behalf of, Uh, conservatives of color I've ever seen, black conservatives, for example my friend Clarence Thomas and Thomas Sowell and an awful lot of the even very bright and courageous black conservatives have been beaten around the head for years just for daring to believe in individual liberty and small government and uh, I, I see black conservatives in America coming out of the closet at, at numbers and rates never before did they feel the welcoming liberty to come in, be in association with folks who have open arms and a tolerance for their audacity in being conservative and black, both at the same time. It's a wonderfully refreshing thing, and I think it's a phenomenon we ought to have our eyes open for. Maybe I'm wrong in this observation, but I believe I'm seeing something happening out there in that regard. And by the way, I might just mention, uh, 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 vegetarian is an Indian word for can't shoot straight.
0: (laughs) One last question right here.
4: Hi, I'm Beth Powers with Liberty in America. We've been traveling the country doing education programs. I have both a comment and a question. The comment is in support of your assertion that this is a very diverse group and that, in fact, for Americans of color and Hispanics included in that group, it's been quite liberati- liberating, and I think we've observed the same thing. My question is about young people. What does the data show about their involvement? We, we know from the... Uh, election in 2008, that young people voted in droves and got active in droves in support of Obama, um, and we also know that there's a sort of a movement on campus that supports the Ron Paul faction, the, uh, you know, the, the radical lib- libertarians. W- what are you seeing in the last several months relative to young people and their involvement in liberty, and what does the data show?
1: i again matt i'll just be quicker. I, I think i'm seeing that emergent we're seeing it in the numbers the signups and so forth uh the the age of the folks signing up and i have a theory about that young people in america that is say the under 30 americans never heard about the constitution before never heard of the great genius and the great courage of our founding fathers before because they've been schooled in. In, in America in recent years, all of a sudden their parents and grandparents are talking in ways that they've never heard before about the founding genius of America, the practical genius of America, the exceptionalism of America, and, and this system that, that encourages uh, the entrepreneurial success. Uh, yeah, and so they're, they're, they are now learning the lessons from their parents that were denied to them in school and they're, and it's catching fire with them. So I think they're coming out now to this movement. There's no doubt in my mind. The movement had to be awakened by people who were properly schooled in liberty and that hasn't been happening in this country in our formal education for some time.
2: We have uh, hip-hop Tea Partiers. We have a Facebook page for Deadhead Tea Partiers. We have Tea Partiers with tattoos and nose rings and we have just about everybody, and part of the Tea Party ethos is to make this thing fun. Who wants to go to a Republican rally where some 70 year old guy with an Adam Smith tie hopefully it didn't offend anybody
0: uh, dick uh, you uh,
2: <laughs> is is given a speech um, so we make it fun, and uh,
0: where did you say you worked uh, <laughs>
2: Well, that's in the past tense. We make it fun, and I would point you to a Gallup survey, I believe, from late March. It's posted on their website that slices and dices Tea Party sympathizers based on every possible demographic measure, and it turns out they look just like everybody else in America.
0: Let me just wrap this up by saying that um, it seems that, in the book discusses this, that there are three waves of the in the last half century of the American people rising to try to take back their country from the progressive experts who are running it here in Washington. The first was, of course, the Goldwater Revolution, which uh, reclaimed the Republican Party to a substantial degree from the Rockefeller wing back in 1964, which finally reached fruition with the Reagan uh, presidency in 1980. Then there was the contract with America, which Dick was so centrally part of, Which uh, focused on taking back the Congress for the first time in 40 years and bringing in some notions of limited government. That fizzled out uh, over time. And now we have the third wave, which looks like it's going to take because it comes from the bottom up. It is not leader led, it is leaderless, and therefore reflects a real, true groundswell. The effort will now be to keep it going after the elections of November and from all signs these people are dead serious these people you see at these rallies they are forming local clubs and they will keep Congress's and the President's feet to the fire one hopes and with a little luck we will have a slow restoration or maybe rapid of limited constitutional government in this country Uh, the book is available as I said at a discount outside it is a great book Uh, It is well worth your read, and uh, you can have uh, Dick and Matt sign it. Uh, Let's have a warm round of applause for them and have lunch.
1: Let me just, my wife insists that I point out to you that neither Matt nor I receive a dime of the royalties. They all go to the cause. She said, why don't you talk about that? I said, it's too painful. (laughs) You all have good.